it's been really incredible watching the thawing in the United States. You know, people always ask me, are we in crypto spring yet? Are we exiting crypto winter? And I like to say, well, in most parts of the world, yes, uh, we are, I think, entering crypto spring. But in the US, we've kind of been stuck in this regulatory permafrost. And we've had occasions of shoots coming up through that. But now I think we are seeing a general thawing. And to take this way too far, my hope is that we're going to see an acceleration of that and we're going to catch up with the rest of the world. That's what I'm observing. And I'm hopeful that remains the case. This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by CME Group and PayPal. Yesterday here over at the conference, they said financial market policymaking is about a marketplace of ideas where the ideas themselves have to be marketed. So you have to come up with the good ideas, but then you have to figure out a way how to sell those ideas. And even as you go and you're continuously kind of learning new things, you know, now all of a sudden you kind of have to figure out like, well, how do you do that? One of the things that I've long talked about is sense of scale, that regulation actually creates the scale of a market. So if you have a, in the US, a state money transmitter license regime, then when you're a nationwide money transmitter, you're actually 50 separate marketplaces. Actually, you're more than 50 separate marketplaces. And that's because the regulation has fragmented and kept those markets that size. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. I'm recording today from Money 2020, a conference in Vegas focusing on fintech that includes a lot of our crypto friends, two of whom I have with me here today. I've got Patrick Merck, whose badge tells me he is the TBC of Shoros. We're going to unpack what that title might mean. And then Chris Brummer, a professor at Georgetown Law, but who, of course, has multiple irons in the fire, as both of these gentlemen do. So thank you both for being here with me today. My pleasure. Uh, it, it's great to be back and to also hear your, your podcast voice. Uh, yeah, well, there it is. Well, we are both repeats, actually, on the show. So thanks yeah. for coming back. You know, I want to kick us off by just, we're at this fintech conference primarily, Money 2020. It does have a very strong crypto track. We've discussed that there's an entire track this year on cannabis banking, a new kind of thing. So let us I think we can acknowledge this conference is a bit cutting edge in terms of topics and everything else. But I wanted to kick us off by just asking you both, how do you think about the intersections of fintech and crypto? And, and do you see those lines becoming more and more blurry over time? Because I know there are some in government who are trying to create, actually, I would say artificial boundaries among those two categories. Why don't we start with you, Patrick? Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, and it's similar to this concept that you will still hear sometimes around private blockchains and public block. Th- these are meaningless terms, right? And, and I think what we're also seeing generally through, throughout this whole like crypto fintech tradfi divide is that as you dig deeper and you look at what people are doing, you realize that those boundaries, as you say, are artificial, right? It, it really is what are the services, what, what kind of business are you building and things like that. The technology that empowers you, enables you to do it is pretty irrelevant, right? It's really about sort of what solutions you can deliver for people and things like that. So as you go around and you listen to people at the conference and things like that, you're, you know, what I'm listening for is less about like, what magic code you're running and more about what are you actually doing, right? How are you helping people? What market are you serving? Things like that. I think this, like, those terms and this terminology, like you say, I think it's, it's limiting, it's artificial, um, and, and it's, I'm, I think, used to create contention often. Yeah, you know, I, I think that when you think about what fintech means, it's financial technology. And so, you know, that's a very broad array of tools. And I think that a good entrepreneur uh, or a financial 
uh, player ultimately needs to solve someone's problems in order to be effective and to be profitable. And I think that you know, trying to divide the world into a crypto world or a blockchain-based world and a non-blockchain-based world is, is really kind of limiting. And it, it really ignores all of the other kinds of financial uh, technology applications that are ultimately going to be very important when it comes to delivering financial services. I think it can be used as an excuse by both sides. You mentioned the regulators. I think it can also be used as an excuse by entrepreneurs to not answer the real question, which is, who's my customer? What problem do I solve, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, look at my magic technology, right? <laughs> look at my fancy box I created. And, and so I think it cuts both ways a little bit. And so I think both sides sort of enjoy balkanizing what they do to avoid having to actually be compared across the whole spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there is one, I guess, sort of interesting or, or useful thing to keep in mind, and, and, and that is that the fintech world as we know it, let's call it the, um, and again, it, it can span lots of different kinds of areas from payments to even uh, machine learning, even as we talk more about Gen AI, but you know, that, that fintech space has been around uh, longer than, uh, you know, blockchain-based uh, services. And so, you know, they've, they've had some battles before, you know, and, and, and maybe if you're coming from that world, uh, you may see in crypto some of the battles that you've uh, tried to fight, maybe more effectively, maybe less effectively, uh, and, and maybe that could be where some of it comes from. But, but ultimately, I, I don't think anyone really cares. Certainly the end user doesn't care, right? They just want to know what is the problem or uh, that any particular te- uh, technology solution is going to solve, how is it going to make my life easier? And you know, uh, whether or not it's being used as, a, as an excuse or, or not, you know, I, I think that's, that's where we need to keep our eye on the prize. Okay, so let's stick with this a little longer because something I find very interesting is that you know, we have a world with big banks and big tech. And fintech is trying to disrupt sort of both of those categories. And crypto is trying to disrupt arguably broader categories, not just the financial services part of big tech and big banks, but also some of the other, the ways the internet itself functions. And yet these two categories persist, crypto and fintech, to the point that we have various you know, bodies, associations, whatever, and people kind of self-identify into these things. Now, in some cases, you have larger companies, conglomerates of sorts that have a fintech you know, division and a crypto division and you know whatnot, but people still do tend to gravitate towards these different categories. And I think some of that is cultural, but I'm curious to get your thoughts as to, we, I agree completely, the boundaries are very blurry if they're even real at all, but why do you think that persists? Well, the, it definitely there's a cultural component, right? I mean, people who are gravitating towards Web3 and crypto and things like that are are in my, you know, in my interactions, categorically different from people who gravitate towards banking as a service, right? Uh, generally, not in their, not in their hearts, right? But in how they talk about what they do, how they present themselves, and how they think about solving problems in the world, even, right? Um, so, you know, in, in the fintech, you have more of an incrementalist approach, right? Like, I can take what's there and make it a little bit better. That's very culturally aligned with what I generally see in fintech. And then sort of in the Web3 crypto world, it's more transformative. Like, yeah, exactly. We're going to just explode this whole thing. And within two years, everything you know is going to be gone and different, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And we'll have reimagined it in my utopia. And it's like, mm, probably not. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I think those, those cultural uh, norms play themselves out in terms of how they view 
clearly other legacy financial institutions to what Patrick was saying, but also even regulators, right? Like if, you're, if your idea is to uh, ultimately uh, increase the proximity between an individual or an end user and a service, then you're thinking to yourself, you know, the technology itself can, can solve, you know, a very wide array of problems uh, and you're, you know, often going to think that it can solve problems that even uh, other non-market players like the government can solve, right? And so the posture vis-a-vis TradFi and I think the regulatory system is uh, instinctively a little bit different. Um, part of it is due to you know, uh, different parts of the country, different kinds of sort of ideological sort of um, uh, places where people just start and kind of view the world and, and how they view uh, the place of innovation. But part of it arguably is in the technology itself, in terms of what the technology is trying to do and what it does uh, can lead someone to, um, you know, just a different idea as to what is needed in order for the service to be delivered properly or effectively. And so that, that, that kind of um, exacerbates uh, some of the cultural differences. And do you think that demographics are going to change? I mean, we've talked a lot on this show about digital natives. I've talked about what I call crypto natives, uh, namely those folks who are going to have a different concept of what they should be able to do with their data, you know, written more broadly. Do you think, I mean, you teach a lot of young folks, Chris, do you feel like attitudes have changed toward this over time or are, are continuing to change? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think so. I, I I think when you ask a lot of law professors, you know, when we go through uh, corporations or securities law or business law or something, and, and you ask the students, well, how many of you have owned shares of stock? You know, maybe you'll get like 10%, but then you ask, well, how many of you own Bitcoin? And then, you know, you, there are more hands that, that, that not infrequently go up, and that's just sort of interesting as a professor. But I, I think that uh, one of the interesting things about fintech itself, and, and maybe, you know, it's a question of like who learns from, from what and, and how it's not always best to be too religious about how you demarcate things for problem solving, is that, you know, fintech is focused or has traditionally been focused on that customer interface, the retail interface. Like, how do you make something really easy, right? And I think that the Web 3 folks tend to sort of think about Web 2 as where that was kind of prioritized or, or thought about. And they understand that, okay, look, if we're going to move and advance uh, the industry, we have to make it easier for people to get onboarded. We have to make that interface a little bit more cu um, customer and uh, uh, friendly and the like. But that's something where, like, you know, the fintech people, because they were thinking about banks, and, and people understand that banks are not necessarily incented to serve low deposit customers. And, like, you know, fintechs have always been about that, right? Like, have always been about how can we actually deliver services, not just the ones that, uh, say, a large financial institution may not really be that interested in providing, but even in the world of the bank-driven services, how can we make that as, as user-friendly as possible, right? And, 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 you know, young people do like ease of being able to use um, different kinds of technologies. So I think we can acknowledge that, you know, Bitcoin in its earliest <laughs> was, not, was not focused on user-friendly friendliness at all, but this frame on inclusion that you note it was is absolutely core, I think, to exactly why Bitcoin, well, who can say what the motivations of Satoshi were, but regardless. And so, Patrick, you're a super OG Bitcoin lawyer and everything else. How have you seen this change over time, if at all? Well, I mean, when you think about, like, Bitcoin from a UX or UI perspective, I mean, it, it, it's all relative. <laughs> like, UI and UX <laughs> is all relative, right? For a certain type of person, even early days, Bitcoin the way it looked, right? Like, that was the right... UI and UX, right? They want to compile their own client. They want to see the source code. They want to see that. Now, 
that's not going to get you billions of users, right? Like <laughs> billions of people aren't going to do that, and it's probably pretty utopian to think that yeah. they ever could, right? Um, you never know. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Computer literacy might get there someday. So the UX, you know, it, it did work for a certain type of user, and then, and then you saw things built on top of that, right? So you saw the Coinbase's of the world, the Krakens of the world, etc., right? Um, circles you know, building a UX on top of that that sort of addressed a broader market. And that's much how the internet was built um, in, in the same way. It is funny, though, when you think of, like, because often you think, like, Web3 is a little more millennial and FinTech's a little more Gen X, and millennials are just a little bit more, like, accustomed to utopian thinking and Gen X not so much, right? So I, I don't know if we can really paint with a broad brush in these generational ways, but I think there is something to people who are, digitally native and what that means. There's digitally native as a consumer of apps, which requires a sophisticated UX and comfortable user flow where you're not seeing it. And then there's digitally native in that sense of like early Bitcoiners where it's, you know, the UI UX I want is I want to see the source code. I want to compile it myself, make sure the signatures match because that is how I really know that this works, right? And that's how I feel empowered. Trust but verify, yeah. CME Group cryptocurrency futures and options provide market-leading liquidity for Bitcoin and Ether trading. These cash-settled contracts give full exposure to crypto performance without the hassle of holding the physical position. No digital wallet? No problem. Trade nearly 24-7 in a transparent CFTC-regulated market. Visit cmegroup.com crypto to learn more. This communication is not directed to investors of any specific jurisdiction or to recipients based in jurisdictions in which distribution is not permitted. It cannot be considered investment advice or results of market experience. Past results are not indicative of future performance. Trading derivatives products involves the risk of loss. Please consider it carefully. Full disclaimer included in show notes. Introducing PayUSD, PayPal's US dollar equivalent stablecoin. Designed for digital payments and Web3 transactions, PayUSD is the only stablecoin supported by PayPal. Built on Ethereum, it's compatible with the most widely used wallets, exchanges, and dApps, and fully backed by US dollar deposits and cash equivalents. Eligible US PayPal customers who purchase PayPal USD are able to transfer PayPal USD between PayPal and compatible external wallets, send PayPal USD to friends in the US on PayPal or Venmo without fees, shop with PayPal USD on millions of sites, wallets, and dApps, convert any of PayPal's supported cryptocurrencies to and from PayPal USD. Whether you are a crypto expert or a newcomer to the world of digital currencies, PayPal provides a secure and convenient platform for your crypto transactions. Start exploring now at paypal.com PYUSD. Okay, so one thing that also has combined or kind of brought uh, bedfellows together between the fintech and crypto worlds is this whole concept of tokenization of real-world assets. Now, this is a hot, hot topic. It's a hot topic for regulators. It's a hot topic here at the conference. And I'm going to read something that came out this morning. Uh, so Mike Sue, the acting controller of the OCC, uh, issued a, you know, it was just a statement about a symposium they're going to have, you know, whatnot. But he, he wrote this, and I'm going to read it out loud and have you two react to it. So he, he wrote... There is an emerging divide between crypto and the tokenization of real-world assets and liabilities. Crypto remains driven by the promise of speculative gains, continues to be marked by rampant scams, fraud, and hacks, and struggles to comply with anti-money laundering rules. By contrast, 
tokenization is driven by solving real-world settlement problems and can easily be developed in a safe and sound manner and fully compliant with anti-money laundering rules. Now, let's not get into the whole AML piece. And if you're interested in that, I would strongly suggest everyone look at CCI's Twitter feed, our LinkedIn. We've been doing a tremendous amount of content about uh, the non-truth, I think, of this <laughs> statement. So we'll leave that piece aside. But I'm curious on this tokenization, this divide being drawn between crypto and tokenization, what you all think. Yeah, I mean, clearly the message that I hear when I, when, when I hear that is uh, finance for me, but not for thee, right? It's sort of like, as long as the banks are doing this and they're within the regulatory perimeter and we oversee everything that they're doing, then it's great. And if it's not that, then it's this thing called crypto, which I have now defined as being like, a hive of, you know, a, a nest of vipers, right? Like, and awful people. The seedy side right? of Vegas. Exactly. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, it's here in Vegas, you know, where the, the, the crypto is in yeah, Vegas, right? Yeah, there it is. Um, so it, it's like, I mean, that's how I hear and read that comment, right? It's like, when the people we regulate that are, are already in sort of like our purview do it, then it's called tokenization of assets, and it's great. And we should have a symposium about it, Right. When anybody else does it, they're crypto and bad, right? That's, that's sort of my takeaway from that. And I think that's unfortunate. It's like, it's unnecessarily, as you said earlier, it's unnecessarily drawing lines in the sand and dividing this by, I don't even, it's not even by technological terms. It's sort of just by like, you know, I like this and I don't like that, like flavor of the month kind of thing. And it's, it's, um, it's not helpful. Well, it's particularly interesting because tokenization is a concept that really crypto has brought into the light and made a reality in a scalable way. But Chris, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, you know, well, number one, really interested in that symposium. I think it's, you know, as a conceptual idea, I think it's it's a it's a great idea in insofar as you want to think about, well, you know, how can you tokenize real world assets? I'm certainly not against, you know, thinking through what that means. I think there are lots of efficiencies. I think that, you know, when people kick the tires, you know, uh, you know, the tokenization of real world assets can lead to all kinds of things and it can uh, make things simpler, but it can also introduce complexity. And, you know, regulators should understand that even when you sort of see something that in your view may uh, uh, entail or reference instruments that are more traditional or, or better known, as we've seen in 2008, those kinds of instruments can be mixed and matched in different kinds of ways that can also import um, instability into the financial system. I, I, I think, you know, sometimes I wonder, and, and I, uh, uh, this is just a, a, a sort of a banking general observation, which I, I, I find fascinating, is a lot of the, the banking industry, at least at first, um, some, some members were a little bit skeptical of, of crypto um, for any number of reasons. But at the same time, it's hard to be skeptical about the industry when it's also something you want to get into. <laughs> and for Washington, D.C., that's a tricky policy space. Because if you end up sort of saying, this is bad, this is horrible, this is awful all the time, then it's really hard to do the 180 and say, but by the way, you know, we should be the ones uh, to sort of touch those assets or to deal with those assets. Because then the regulator is going to ask a natural question, well, wait a second, I thought, I thought you, you thought this stuff was arsenic, but you're telling me right now that you want to take a sip and you know, keep several bottles of it over in your backpack. Like, like why exactly do you want to do this? Well, a little bit at a time actually like, helps build you immunity. build immunity. Oh, does, Did you oh, okay, ever read okay. Agatha Christie? Did you ever read Agatha Christie? 
Christie novels growing up. I am sorry. I, okay, well, well, now I guess it all makes sense. But, you know, and, and I think that there's this challenge where people do and are recognizing that there are certain efficiencies in any kind of blockchain-based technology. I think the crypto industry obviously has problems with some of those native assets because we've seen, you know, lots of um, failures in uh, market integrity. But the problem is even a token and the token to drive some of the, you know, literally the infrastructure for real-world asset tokenization would probably be its own unique uh, self-referential asset, right? And so, you know, it would literally re rely on crypto, right, in order for certain operational systems. You know, ultimately, I think it gets back to the to the question of, um, you know, the technology itself, our very first issue really, you know, like you have a toolbox. How are you going to use that toolbox to deliver valuable services for people in a way that is more efficient and or more inclusive, right? And, and I think that that's something that all the, all the regulators are still very much trying to, yeah, grapple with. It's very interesting to think about this statement, which, which again, I don't want to read fully out of context, but it was something that was written and, you know, arguably other words could have been written, right, in announcing this symposium and, and indicating the kinds of folks they're hoping potentially will attend this symposium. I'm reading a lot into this, but I think it's fair to say that's what this probably statement was Yeah, I mean, at. I think it's it's right there. I mean, they're, they're trying to create a separation and they're trying to other crypto, right? Now, in fairness, right, like you said, in fairness, right, you don't have to go back very far to see, like, you know, yep. FTX blowing up, Terra Luna blowing up. I mean, it's not coming from nowhere. Correct. Right? And it's, uh, it, I think it's a, it's a, there's a little more nuance to that that gets lost in the regulatory community in particular, which is, it's not crypto that scammed people. It was scammers that scammed crypto people. And... So, you know, the victim bleeds twice, right? So crypto, crypto communities first get scammed by scammers who are sometimes promoted by regulators um, who received a lot of political donations. And then afterwards, it's everybody who got scammed is now a scammer, right? Um, and that's what I see in that statement. Um, I don't think that's intentional. I think what they're trying to do is steer clear of what the bad actors that actually were there and sort of all the toxicity that comes with that while still opening the door to taking a sip of the arsenic that Chris thinks is, <laughs> you know. It's, it's, it's healthy, apparently. It's, nice. it's, it's healthy. It's healthy. Come on in, the arsenic's like fine. Come a on symposium in. every now and then is good <laughs> sip of arsenic. <laughs> 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 well, you know, I, since we've entered the era where I think we're just saying words out loud, apparently, you know, I've, I've been calling the, the whole Sam situation old-timey fraud. And what is interesting about this statement is that certainly in the RWA tokenization space, there's nothing that's going to prevent that kind of old-timey historical fraud. I and mean, you have the legacy there is like it's Ken Lay, it's Bernie Madoff, right? It's like, it goes all the way back, I'm sure, to like the train stuff, like all of this, steel, you know. So it's not, um, it, there's no defense being built against bad actors acting and criming in broad daylight, you know? So let's like abstract out of this for a second, because, you know, as I sit here and I, and I listen, well, this isn't the first time that if you're a bank, you say to yourself, you know, I, I don't like CBDCs, but, uh, and I don't like stable coins, but I do like tokenized deposits, right? So think about tokenized deposits as this kind of alternative. You know, I don't like crypto, but I like uh, you know real-world asset tokenization, right? And, and and I wonder in the U.S. context, uh, that toxicity question is is for real. And if you're trying to navigate it and say to yourself, you know, you know I always I always tell my friends in D.C., be careful because whenever anyone in Washington sort of sticks their flag in the ground, it's very hard to unstick 
your flag out of the ground, right? So if you've kind of like, you know, marked your terrain and, and stuck your flag under the ground and now, you know, you start to do a little bit more research and you're like, oh, wow, you know, this is kind of useful and you, you, know, you can see very real ways uh, in which value is, is, is being added, you know, then you have to kind of figure out how do you integrate that into a sellable market uh, policy. I said yesterday here over at the conference, I said financial market policymaking is about a marketplace of ideas where the ideas themselves have to be marketed. So you have to come up with the good ideas, but then you have to figure out a way how to sell those ideas. And even as you go and you're continuously kind of learning new things, you know, now all of a sudden you kind of have to figure out like, well, how do you do that? And and I think that as more people become sophisticated and more use cases, um, you know, some work, some won't work, but those that do work can be uh, significant, that, that that puts a little bit of pressure about, well, then how do you integrate that into a, a workable uh, a framework? But I, I, you know, to your point, um, uh, regulators are gonna have to be very careful about, uh, you know, the ideas that they themselves um, are, are considering. Um, but, I, but I do think that this one statement, I mean, when you look at the, the larger overall questions, like again, tokenized the, the tokenized deposit conversation. I mean, it's not like the first time where people have said we're going to prefer the the iteration that's native to the community that I am either regulating or more familiar with. So let's. I'm going to take advantage of Michael not being here this week to go full law nerd because I've got two law nerds with me. So <laughs> so let's switch gears a bit and just just lean into that. There's a lot of talk, I think, about product market fit in tech circles. I actually think a lot about product market fit in legal circles, and I think about that in the context of regulation. And so, a lot of our regulatory environment. Let's stick with the U.S. for the moment, although we can talk about other places as well as you both want to. Uh, you know, I, I think we are all in agreement that laws that were in the orange groves 100 years ago. You know, <laughs> you, you got to recognize the evolution of not just the technology, that's one thing, but of consumer expectation. And we've touched on this a bunch you know, in, in our conversation today. And you have to accommodate the reality that consumers are going to demand different kinds of interfaces, different kinds of experiences, et cetera, not all of which are going to easily comply with the way the regulatory scheme and existence at any given moment has imagined the reality, right? And so the question of kind of product market fit in a way, flipping it and talking about it as a regulator, as a lawyer, you know, how do you think about that not happening right now, but also like, what are the things that you both are involved actually in a number of different initiatives and other kinds of things trying, I think, the way I see it, to address this gap. So I'd love to hear from you about those efforts. You know, number one, when, when people talk about money, I said, you know, money is the ultimate consumer facing product. I say, you know, what, even when you don't have it, you, <laughs> you, you kind of know it, right? And I think that regulation kind of fits up there. Like, even if you don't really know it, it really does impact you. And, and as a result, you know, regulation is, it, it is a product, you know, it's, it's something that people use, it impacts their welfare, it impacts their economics, you know? And if, if you're not making sure that your regulation has the right sort of product market fit, you know, you're actually doing a disservice for the very stakeholders and the people who kind of rely on it. And I, and I do think that now, you know, as ho hopefully um, the policy conversation starts to wind a little bit towards ever pain, painfully sometimes, uh, to <laughs> All, <laughs> always, <laughs> like, like, sometimes circular, always. <laughs> sometimes circular, sometimes it, it comes in waves, you know, but you know, it, where people are, are being required to kind of ask some rather concrete questions about, well, you know, what do different regulatory frameworks kind of look like for any specific problems, you know, uh, 
uh, there's a certain degree of regulatory innovation that is going to be required. And you see, I mean, even the central banks, you know, around the world, you know, they're trying to figure it out. You know, uh, they have R and D divisions, oh, right? Entire Absolutely. divisions that are that, that, that are trying to figure out a, a lot of this stuff. And I think that in the crypto space as well, you're going to have that same energy that's going to be devoted towards. Um, the regulatory um, innovation in, and compliance and solutions. Um, you know, I was at a conference and one of the best known fintech VCs in the world said, you know, that this year was going to be, you know, the year of reg tech for fintech. And I was sitting there, I'm like, yeah, it's going to be also, I think, the, you know, that kind of year for uh, the space, in part to address the toxicity issue, uh, in part to address, you know, clearly, as we've seen, lingering uh, regulatory uh, uh, suspicion, but but also in order to grow the space, you know, and you know, and, and it's part of of something that again in the fintech wars with banking that they had to learn, uh, and 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 they learned very 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 successfully, um, and and I think that we're going through that process. You know, obviously you you know you've done a lot of work on the AML KYC space, uh, but also you know in those core pieces of infrastructure. I was uh, here earlier and I talked about disclosure. I think that's going to be a huge issue uh, going forward. And then again, you know, what, how do you think about how the pieces of a, of, of a regulatory system work? Like even if you're not trying to recreate a very specific uh, vehicle in a financial system, what is the function of that thing? And how do you achieve the objective of that piece with the technology stack that is available. Yeah, and there's two things. One, when you think about regulatory product market fit, I mean, one of the things that I've long talked about is sense of scale, right? That regulation actually creates the scale of a market. So if you have, a in the U.S., a state money transmitter license regime, then when you're a nationwide money transmitter, you're actually 50 separate marketplaces. Actually, you're more than 50 separate marketplaces, right? And that's because the regulation has fragmented and kept those markets that size. Taxi cab markets were city-sized, right? Some markets are country-sized. What's happening with crypto in particular, and however we want to label crypto, <laughs> uh, not the Viper's Nest, you know, right, the people right. who actually yes, do the CD that. Vegas, not CD yeah, Vegas. Not the CD Vegas, right? <laughs> is that technology is itself a sort of regulatory framework in some ways, and it's global scale. And there's no corresponding global scale regulation to meet it, and there's no real body that can create that in this world, probably for a good that's probably a good thing. Let's not wish that into existence. I don't mean to put that out there. I'm not manifesting. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> control but, Z, control Z. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's, that's one part of it. And I think that's a constant tension that's just not going to go away, is that you have national scale regulation that creates national scale markets. And then you have a technology that is really borderless and creates its own sort of self-regulatory marketplace. And that's where you hit into the AML issues, the sanctions issues, the securities law issues. Um, and some of those things must be harmonized in order to work. AML sanctions don't work if they aren't harmonized across borders. How, but securities laws do. Right, you can actually have fragmented securities laws and have different community just have different takes on what they consider to be investor protection, and that's fine. It doesn't harm the other country who has a different standard for one country to have a lower standard, generally speaking, in consumer protection and securities regulation and those things. AML and 
you know, CTF Although, is different. You, you know, it's, it's really interesting because uh, I was over in London and, you know, t uh, as a lawyer when something called the Prospectus Directive uh, came out, which was basically Europe's attempt to, to figure out what, what kind of rules and disclosure rules needed to be required. And I thought it was really interesting because I was in London as an American lawyer and I got calls from continental Europe asking how exactly should we be satisfying, um, you know, that, that directive. And that ultimately, uh, you know, cross-border information flows and like ultimately create a, a, a very large level of harmonization for the key aspects of cross-border um, uh, finance, right? But right now, that uh, interagency cross-border regulatory process, you know, it's really hard to harmonize rules if not everybody's making rules. Um, you know, you, 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 you can't harmonize by yourself, right? Um, and, and, I, and it is important, and, I, and I'm not identifying or trying to mark out any country, that every country kind of has to have its own position first before they go to, you know, like, like before I go to negotiate with you, I have to know what my reservation point is. I have to know exactly what I want. That is a, a part of that process. I'm gonna put my little plug in for DC FinTech Week. You know, we're getting lots of regulators around and you know, DC's pretty international town. And you know, it, it is fascinating having, you know, the EU or Julia Leung from Hong Kong or Verena Ross from the EU, you know, kind of beaming in or something to, to talk about or being there, uh, you know, Peter Kirsten's or something, you know, to kind of talk about how that sausage making is done. But it is interesting because I, I, I know enough to know that that process uh, can be faster, it can be slower, but you do need two things. You have to have you know, parties that uh, are making some kind of rules uh, and there has to be amongst all the different member states enough of an understanding as to the general sort of proximate position as to where they want to land in order to begin talking about what what those global standards uh, uh, should look like. And, yeah, and so then there's like this the second piece of this sort of regulatory product market fit and and I'll, I'll, since we're in you know, since it's time to plug things that we do, I'll go ahead and do it. As, uh, I'm sorry, TBC? <laughs> best uh, title ever. The best title ever. I, I think we decided that that was the Brummer Council. Well, there it is. There it is. That's my job title, I think. So this is something we, when I, we're about 11 weeks old now as a company and everything. Um, and the reason we came together to build the company in the first place was with this in mind, right? Around... Real-world asset tokenization. I think, obviously, real-world asset is, like, an awful name. And, I mean, is it, like, <laughs> otherwise fake-world assets? Yeah, exactly like, right. mean, there's, there's just a lot going on there, but it's in the, you know, we'll just say it for now to keep things moving. Um, in, that, in that space, um, I view it as an opportunity for blockchain, crypto, whatever we want to call it, for a reset, right? To step back from... You know, we've got to go as fast as we can and break things, and like, and then you let sort of the vipers into the nest and everything. Step back. Okay, we've had crypto winter now. Uh, I do think there are green shoots coming. We, I think we can see them. Step back and like, how do we? Okay, we're going to build this. How are we going to build this the right way? And not just like on an island in a utopia. Like, let's actually look at fintech. Let's look at tradfi and see how it happens. So when you're going to issue these assets, one of the things that we emphasize as a company and one of the things that we enable is separating the originators of assets from the fiduciaries who hold those assets, right? If you're, and, and then further separating both of them from the exchanges where they're traded and separating them from the people who are doing the disclosures, right? Third-party disclosures. 
there's a sensible reason why those things happen in TradFi. If you've been in the space and you didn't learn that lesson a couple of years ago, I, I mean, how do you learn it? You, I, you're just not going to learn it, and you might not. Maybe it's that's the NGMI, right? Like, I, I, I <laughs> maybe, know, that, I'm, maybe I'm, that's the difference. Obviously, a Gen Xer because I said that three years too late, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, and so that's what we're working on, right? So we're trying to create um, a more accessible and safer uh, capital market infrastructure um, by creating a digitally native trust company that allows you to segregate those duties, the originators, the uh, custodians, um, and the marketplaces that where these things are traded. And, and I think it's this huge opportunity in the space to really step back and think, how can we use the technology and and you know you see it in non-custodial ways with with zk you know tech and like there's a ton of really cool tools tooling out there that people can use to really do this in in ways that are literally like 100x 1000x more efficient than it's done even in fintech and it's like that's the opportunity it is not just another coin. Yeah, and, and you know, and I just just to emphasize that, you know, that's the opportunity. You know, it's not about what's fintech and what's crypto. It's not about what's, you know, crypto and what's real world tokenization, right? It's a question of how can you build a tech stack that's actually superior to not just what is missing in the crypto ecosystem, but actually, you know, can be superior to what's actually in TradFi. Right or what's 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 operative in a fintech ecosystem, and doing that you know, with a degree of seriousness, you know that's where the opportunity is, um, and and I think that's that's what's really kind of exciting because for for all of the uh, for all of the 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 back and forth both on the industry and and on the regulatory side, you know that we are a, a pro, you know approaching very quickly you know that 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 moment in that in that space. I think about this next phase in, in my framing as digital asset integration in a way. And the idea that across all of these, I don't even think they're verticals and we've already kind of examined this, but just for the sake, as Patrick, no, just to kind of get on with it, you know, fintech, crypto, TradFi, you know, whatever it is, the reality, I think, and, and I'll go back and I'll take a different spin, I think, on Patrick, what you were saying about the what I've called the spectacular and ongoing implosion, you know, of FTX. But the other things that happened, which is, and yet. Right. And yet here, we, here are. we are. So even with that context, I think it is almost impossible to say with a straight face that this asset class is going to go away. It's just not. It's just not. It's going to evolve. It's going to have to evolve. I think we all agree on that. Uh, the work that you both are doing, I think, is seminal to kind of what does that next phase look like? And to me, it's about defying almost these verticals in the build space and saying, call it whatever the hell you want. I don't care. Are you a crypto company? Are you a fintech company? It doesn't even matter. What you're doing is saying we need to be integrating this so that you, the user, can make a choice about how do you want to see this asset pop up and where and what in a way that respects some of the logical principles that do exist in traditional finance, but have product market fit for this technology opportunity that it is going forward. I'm going to have to close us, uh, but I will end by saying, because uh, you know everything's being plugged here, I suppose, uh, I'm actually headed out to Washington um, to the State of Crypto Policy and Regulation event that Coindesk is putting on in Washington. Uh, you'll also be able to catch me at DC FinTech Week in November. I want to thank my guests, Patrick Mark, Chris Bremer, for joining me, taking time out of your Vegas time away from the sports book and the tables and all of that and <laughs> all the amazing content in my 2020 to join me here today. And to all of you listening, come back again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. 
You've been listening to Money Reimagined with Sheila Warren, recording from Money 2020, a conference in Vegas focusing on fintech with guests Patrick Merck and Chris Brummer. Today's show has been produced by senior producer Michelle Musso, and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is The News Tonight by Shimmer. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 